the expectations of Olympic athletes is that they never crumble. They're always strong and they're the best in the world and they're the strongest in the world. And therefore, this is a sign of weakness that, you know, you would never expect from an, an Olympic athlete. Do you ever feel like the person most getting in your way is you? Do you have an inner voice that whispers, you can't do it? Welcome to Tiger Therapy. My name's Pippa Woodhead and I am no therapist, but I know firsthand that the big bad walls of career dreams are self-doubt and limiting beliefs. For the past few years, I've been interviewing business leaders about work and I have felt like an imposter for, well, a lot of these conversations. Each week, I'll be speaking to someone brilliant who's achieved success on their own terms. Join me as we hear about their life, their career journey, and find out what role, if any, self-doubt and limiting beliefs have played a part in their story. I don't know about you, but I'm sick of holding myself back. A key thing I'm learning is no matter where you come from, you get to choose your mindset. So lay back on the Tiger Therapy couch and let's meet today's guest. My interviewee today is known in her native Singapore as Singapore's Swim Queen. Jocelyn Yeo started swimming professionally at the tender age of 11. And throughout her extraordinary athletic career, she has swam in four consecutive Olympics. And at the Southeast Asia Games, often called the Sea Games, she holds the record for the most amount of gold medals ever won. 40 gold medals. Despite so much success, as you'll hear us discuss, Jocelyn feels limiting beliefs really held her back. And at the peak of her swimming career, she was secretly battling with a mental health crisis. And just a heads up, this podcast contains mention of self-harm. After retiring from swimming, certainly not one to slow down, Jocelyn became a member of parliament. She also became a mother of four and is now co-founder of Into the Wild, which through amazing wilderness adventures is helping thousands of children build grit and resilience. I'm full of admiration for Jocelyn, as I'm sure you will be as well after listening to our conversation. Jocelyn, you're someone who you could very easily look at your list of accomplishments and just be dazzled and only see medals, accolades. When you look back over everything you've done so far, what do you think? Uh, you know, I think that it does look a lot on paper, but the truth is it's years and years of a process, right? A life journey that I've taken. And those, I guess, accolades or achievements are just things that happened along the way. But, you know, there's so much in that process that I've taken in growing into who I am today, you know, and, and that process hasn't stopped. It's still growing. Yeah. Yeah. So, you started swimming internationally for the Singapore swim team at the age of 11. Can that be right? I, I read this. Yeah. Like, Can that be right? And then in 1992, you made your first Olympic Games and you were 13. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's funny, Jocelyn, I don't know why I never thought about Olympic athletes being that young, that you can compete when you're 13. I guess uh, for swimming, it's a time-based sport. And so as long as you make the cut in terms of the time that you swim, then you can qualify for the Olympics, right? And um, I think at that time, I was the fastest Singaporean in that event, 
Uh, plus, I made the the timing that was required for an Olympic cutoff time, and so the country sent me to my first Olympics at thirteen. How is it in your memory being thirteen and being in the Olympic Village? It was Barcelona, right? That was Barcelona, surrounded by all the best athletes in the world. What was going on for you? Oh man, it was pretty mind blowing to be honest. And it, I think it wasn't just swimming, but it was also the other sports that I grew up watching, like basketball, for example. You know, it was the first Olympics that I believe they had all the NBA players and, you know, seeing people like Magic Johnson and Scottie Pippen and Michael Jordan, like just in the Olympic Village was just mind blowing. It was crazy. Were you starstruck? I was. I was like, whoa. And I couldn't believe how tall they were. I was like, my goodness. You know, but it was actually pretty cool um, just to be amongst them and to think, wow, like, am I really competing at the same event that they are? You know, same competition. It was, it was pretty crazy. Yeah. Did you feel any sense of imposter syndrome at that time? I don't think so. I think I was maybe too young to understand even what imposter syndrome was. But I think <laughs> that for me, it was just very jaw-dropping kind of uh, moments every everywhere I walked and um, just kind of taking it in. But then also in the competition, like during my competition days, it was that sense of, okay, I'm here competing amongst the best in the world and what can I do? And so I think... I was able to take it all in, but also focus when it was time for me to compete and and kind of do my best out there. I think when I was 13, though, I don't think I really believed that I could win a medal at the Olympics. I think I was too young. I felt like, you know, everybody told me that I was going there to be exposed to greater competition. And I think that mm. there's good in that. Uh, but I think that it was also a mindset that I felt hindered me for a long time. Yeah. So I felt like, you know, it was always like, yeah, we are, we're sending you guys to this competition for more exposure. And that was always the line, you know? And so one is you yourself didn't believe that you were there to win a medal. Mm. And I think secondly, it was this sense of, no expectation. Yeah, like you, you, nobody has any expectation of you and you don't have any expectations of yourself. And I think that when you're competing at the highest level, I don't think that's a good thing. Mm. And I think certainly when I went to the Olympics at 13, there was no expectations of myself then. But by the next Olympics, I was 17. I was swimming a lot faster and that mindset had to change. I didn't know how to do that. I didn't have anybody talk to me about it. And it's one of those things that I only learned, I think, a little bit later on by my third Olympics. And it's a shame because I think that I could have progressed maybe a little bit quicker, you know, in those years. But, you know, it is what it is, right? And you take life as it comes. And I think that it wasn't until, you know, 2020, I, I, I would say, when I was competing in the US and uh, I was in college and competing collegiately. And um, that year, we raced in uh, short course meters. And normally in the US, we race in short course yards. But in the year of the Olympics, they always switch that to short course meters and we race in short course meters. And when you race in short course meters, that's where um, all the world records are set. You know, they're all set in meters. 
And so we walked into training, you know, just a few days before competition. And, you know, my coach said this to me, like, why are you guys walking in? Like, you, you don't deserve to be here. I think it was kind of a wake up call for us. And I think we were like, really? Are we doing that? And he's like, yeah, where's your energy? Where's that? You know, I don't see that belief that you feel like you deserve to be here. You know, when we went back, we talked about it as a team. The next day we were like, all right, even if you can't believe it here, like in your head, start with acting like it. Mm. And something begins to change and then you begin to build that belief, right? And I think for us, we our results were there. We were fast. We were swimming fast. We knew we could do well. But I think the mindset and that belief that we couldn't get a good result was limiting us. That's something for me that I took very personally. And I was like, I looked back and I thought, Hey, you know, I don't, I think this is something that wasn't just happening to our team, but this is something that even when I compete at the Olympics, it's, I always believed that, yeah, you know, I'm just there for exposure. Yeah. I'm just there to try to do well, but there's no sense of like, no, I'm there to win and I believe I can win. So after that chat, it's something that switched on in me and I was like, I realized the difference and I, I was like, okay, this is going to be different. We're going to do something different here, right? And my whole team, you know, that w- there was that switch that turned on and, you know, at that meet, we ended up breaking a world record in the relay. That's talking about being the fastest relay team in the entire world. Gosh. And, and, and it's mind-blowing, right? And I think that's something that I learned is so key in how you can perform, really what you believe of yourself and that mindset that you set out to do something with. is such a big difference, mm. you know, a huge difference. And so I think one of the key things for me was when I went into any competition was doing like a self-check, right? Like, what do I believe here? You know, when I go into every training session, it's like, okay, this is my goal for this year. And what, what do I really believe? Do I truly believe that I can go out there and I can win a medal? Like, what is it? So I had a few other experiences after that, which was very interesting. One other one I went into was um, Asian Games. And uh, at that time, you know, the Chinese, the Japanese, the Koreans were super fast. They are people that medal at the Olympics. And again, it's one of those meets where we're always told that, yeah, you guys are just being sent there for exposure, you know, exposing the young ones to these big meets. And, you know, hopefully we'll get a good result and you guys will do some best times and it was always very mediocre kind of a belief. And we went in and I, I swam the heats of the 100 meters butterfly. And after that, I had a, one of my foreign coaches that I trained with. He, he came up to me and he said, you know, you can medal, right? In tonight's <sighs> final. And again, it was like, yeah. And it never, it almost never crossed my mind. And I was like, yeah, I think so. And he's like, well, do you believe it? I hesitated and he's like, you need to believe it. You can totally do this. And so that afternoon, it's like before I had a nap, I just had to switch mindsets. And I was like, you know, I do, I do, I do believe that I can do this. Right. Yeah. And in the race that, that evening, the finals, uh, I ended up winning a bronze and it was the first medal at the Asian games from a Singaporean in many, many, many years. I, I think like decades. Oh, wow. I, I think there's clearly a, a correlation to some of these things. And I do believe that 
a lot of things start with self-belief and what you believe you can and cannot do. Yes. Um, and I think that's where that term comes from, right? The self-doubts, where that limits what you are able to do. Mm. And th- there is truth in that, you know? And I-, I experienced it so many times, you know, in my swimming career. I guess the next thing you really think about is how then do I get over these self-limiting thoughts or beliefs and how then do I get through that and and achieve what I want to achieve yeah and and I guess that's something that's that that process that I talked about you know those years of of competing and trying to figure things out that I learned along the way and sometimes I learned the hard way and sometimes you know I got to learn it from somebody else you know sometimes it was you know a teammate a coach somebody who said something that clicked in my head you know, which then translated into uh, a performance. And I think one of the sayings that I always used to think about was the one where it goes like, you know, you, you shoot for the moon and even if you don't reach it, right, you'll land amongst the stars. And I think that's where, you know, sometimes I feel like people are so afraid of failure that they don't even try to shoot for the moon. You know, they don't even try to have an expectation of themselves because, if they don't, then there's no failure involved, right? And I think a lot of times it's when you experience failure and you experience setback is when you tend to grow, is when you tend to get stronger. And I think that's something that we shouldn't be afraid of because I feel like that's the only way. Even with my kids, when I want them to learn how to be more resilient and when I want them to learn how to be stronger mentally I'm very purposeful about engaging them in stuff that will push their boundaries because I think that without that extra push they will never feel like they have to go out of their comfort zone and then how do they grow and how do they get stronger and then how do they deal with failure as they grow up mountain biking is one of those things that I actually started my kids on when I'm like yeah go take lessons you know it'll be fun But when we get to the trails, some of it's real daunting when you've got routes that you need to ride over or rocks that you need to ride down. I think that it's doing it with them and and also pushing them bit by bit and them being able to achieve that or overcome that is huge, you know, Uh, and it begins to build their self-esteem. It begins to build that strength from within that they can achieve something that they never thought they would be able to. And I find that that translates so much into life as well. Yeah. You know, when, when it comes to studies, when it comes to other things that they want to have happen that doesn't happen for them, they're then able to deal with that. And, and that's happened so many times, so many, so many times in their lives that I, I feel like as a mom, this is definitely the track that I want my kids to go down where they're not finding success every single time, but that they're pushed enough that that setback, there is that failure, you know, and then walking them through, okay, how do we deal with this? And how do we get better? You know, and I believe that that will help to build them up, you know, that as they become adults, they go through different challenges, even whether it's relationships, work, that they learn how to deal with these setbacks and that all these times that they've had to overcome it as a kid has built them up enough that they don't crumble when something big happens. So going back to what you were sharing about the belief, you were showing up to all of these competitions and you didn't really believe that that you could win and you had to go through a mindset shift. Was anyone 
helping you or was it just you saying to yourself, I need to have a mindset shift? No, I think it, it was just me having to do it on my own because I think that a lot of it happens in my head, right? And mm. it's not something that somebody can force. It's something that I feel has to happen in my head and I've got to believe it. And I think that what I did was take myself back to, okay, what have I done in training that allows me to believe? And again, this is like probably one of the little tips that I had as I was going through training is every single challenge that I face in training was that little step to me believing. And I took myself back to the times where I I had to do really, really hard sets and I was able to, or the times that I really struggled and I didn't think I can. And, and I did every time I am able to, I'm building up that building block. I'm building up that belief that I can do things that I never thought I could. And so I went back to those things that I overcame and that helped me, I think, in that moment, flip that switch and be like, okay, I can do this. I think that with my kids as well, I think these are like the little building blocks that I hope to build up for them or work together with them on that they have enough of those little things that they can come back to and be like, you know what? I never thought I could do that, but I, I did. Mm. And if they don't achieve something, it's like, okay, go back to that and remember how that was and remember how you didn't think you could do it, but you did. And that then reminds them they're able to achieve more than they think they can. It's that belief, but it starts way back, right? You kind of have to build up that arsenal and you have mm. to build up those little blocks so that you have something to come back to. Yeah. Well, there's this, this great Henry Ford quote that I love and I now say all the time, which is whether you believe you can or you believe you can't, you're right. So you really need to go into a, a race believing that you can. So, I mean, Jocelyn, obviously you have a swim coach who's helping you with the physical side of things. Do you not, when you go to the Olympics, have someone there helping you emotionally? No. I don't. So I think back in the day, we didn't have as much like support, I guess, uh, in, in those areas. And I think. Is there nowadays? Yes. Yes, yeah. there is. I think they realize how important it is. I think on the mental side of things, right? Like that is for an athlete. A lot of times they say that that moment between winning and not winning actually is all mental, yeah. you know, because if you really look at the time difference between first, second, third, fourth, even 10th place, it could be just half a second. Mm. And, and that's really nothing, you know, in half a second, it's really who gets their hand on the wall first, right? And, and some people do believe that it all comes down to this, just that mental tenacity and that drive and the desire to be the one with the hand on the wall first. Yeah. Well, I remember thinking when Simone Biles dropped out of the Olympics, citing mental health issues, I remember thinking, God, is that, is that a failing of, her coaches that someone wasn't supporting her emotionally enough through all of the through all of the stress mhm mm i think it's it really is hard to say i think that every sport also has a certain culture i think that it comes with and i think that i can't speak for gymnastics but i I do think that if you look at the recent Wimbledon, for example, you watch them play, like in the women's final, for example, you could see when 
things were breaking down mentally, you know, for a certain player and how that just affected her strokes. You know, every hit was just off course, off target. And you can see that it's all mental. It's all happening in the head. When you look in the stands, you see that, yeah, this person does have all that support. You know, they've got their mental coach, their physical coach, their strength coach, their physio, you know, everybody that does stuff for them. And I think that that's how important the mental side is to sport and to winning. But I think even if it was just everyday life that we look at, yeah, we all achieve setbacks. You know, we don't achieve things that we, we want to. And how do we deal with that? I myself have had bouts where I'm not just ready to throw in the towel. I'm ready to just be done living. It gets bad because mm. you come to expect so much of yourself and you don't think that you can do it or you don't think you can live up to that. And you think that an easier way out is just not to be around. Oh, Jocelyn. And that's scary. That's a scary, yeah, yeah it's a very scary path to go down. So I think, Definitely, I think a lot of what happens in your head is so is so important. It's so key to how your life plays out. Mm. So yeah, I'd love to ask you more about that, if I if I may. You've been quite open in the past about how you struggled with with depression and the stress of swimming competitively, and especially the public side of that, the media attention you had at a young age, being photographed all the time. And I've heard you say in an interview before that you would literally try and run away from the press. I've also heard you say, which is just such an image, how on some days you'd be training in the pool and your goggles would literally be filled with tears. Yeah. Just, yeah. Oh, such, a, such a sad image. I'm, I'm just so sorry. Yeah. Well, I think, but th- those are like some of the hard times that I had to push through. And, and that's the thing about swimming at this level is that it is very physically, mentally and emotionally taxing. And it's hard. Yeah. Some days you're just so tired and you still have to do it. <laughs> mm. And yet, right. It's those moments where when you do get through it, you look back and you're like, wow, if I could have done that, I can do a lot more. There's that strength that that's built from those moments that I wouldn't trade for. Mm. So your internal struggles, they evolved from crying in the pool to to drinking and smoking as a coping mechanism. Uh, and even, uh, and I hope it's all right for me to ask you about this, cutting yourself to, mm-hmm. to in your own words, numbing the pain. Yeah, and, and that that's... That's something that is at that time my way. It was my way of coping with the pain and my way of coping with things. Um, and I, I didn't know how. Um, and I just did what, whatever I thought was the easiest, I guess. But I, I dare say that I, I don't have any regrets in life, really. I feel like a lot of those moments, while they were very dark and very painful, have also helped to grow me, have helped me to understand better who I am, have helped me to understand better what are potholes that I could very easily step into and then how do I get out of it. I think one of the things that for me is key has been really surrounding myself with people that are positive and that can really help to pull me out of that hole. Because sometimes when I'm in it, I can't get out of it and I don't mm. know how. I have 
a, a therapist that I can call on if I have to. She's somebody that understands me very well and, and she understands what I'm saying and what I mean when I say something. And then she's able to give me handles, uh, on how do I move forward. And I think that's where I've really come to realize that you, you really can't live life alone and do things on your own. You know, there's, there's stuff that you can control. The stuff that you have to build, but there's also things in life that you can't control. As much as I do believe, uh, in creating these building blocks and building opportunities to strengthen ourselves from within and to build up that grit and that ability to see through hard things. I do believe that it's also sometimes things that um, doing all that doesn't help. And we need something a little bit more. We need something that's out of the norm. And I think for me, that's where my therapist comes in. That's where, you know, family or very close friends come in and they know me well enough to then get me out of that funk, right? And then through my everyday life, that's where, you know, all that grit and all that stuff that I've built up from before then helps me deal with like the, the everyday stuff. Um, so yeah, I do think that there's two spectrums to it, stuff that you can control and stuff that you can't. And I think it's building up that arsenal and learning how to deal with it or what kind of support you need from it that really helps you to kind of get through life. Can, can you remember so that time where you started drinking? Can you remember, was there a sort of trigger point, something that, that started the spiral? Um, I think for, for me, it was very much of just trying to escape pressure. I did not know at that point how to deal with it. I did not know how to build up these little blocks to help me further down. That was something that I saw people doing. And so I was like, all right, this is my, my escape route. This is how I, I get away from it because when you drink and you do is recreational drugs or whatever, it takes you in a completely different world and you're not in touch with reality. You get to the point that you're not in touch with reality where you're not sober, right? And I think for me, it's those little moments of escape that I use to help me deal with it. And it's really not the healthiest way to deal with it. Because with that comes so many other issues. And they, they were really not the best coping mechanisms. I had to learn how to deal with all these emotions in a different way, in a healthy way. You know, and I think that's where surrounding myself with the right people and my therapist and all that has then come into play. Um, where I now have healthy avenues of learning how to deal with stuff. If for some reason in my head, I'm stuck or I can't. I can't deal with it. Then I've got that external help. I heard a story that you arrived to the pool a little bit drunk, <laughs> and you were you were swimming. I mean, it was quite a funny story when I heard you share it. You were swimming in a crooked line. Of course, it's not very funny because it's, it's <laughs> a signal of something much deeper. But was that the moment when you think people around you started to realize, okay, there's a problem here? Yeah, I think. Well, part of it is that I think they saw that I was drinking a lot, and I think. They either put it down to, you know, it was just my age and they go out partying and that's what they do. Mm. And therefore, it wasn't really uh, detected as like, oh, she's struggling with a little bit more than that. And so it kind of just 
flew under the radar as like, you know, maybe she's just a party kid and that's what she's doing. And so nobody really helped me with it. Yeah, it seems extraordinary now because there's such a focus now on mental health and and I'm sure all Olympic athletes now have people very much looking after their emotional side of things more so than they were when you were competing. But I'm just so sorry you went through all of this. And there may be people listening to this who might resonate with this this need for a, a coping mechanism or to, to numb the pain. I mean, is there anything at that time, any message or particular support someone could have offered that would have really helped? Yeah, for sure. I think that if somebody had come and kind of dug a little bit deeper, like not brush it off, like you're an elite athlete, you're an Olympic athlete, you're supposed to be strong, mm, you know, mm. but come from that place of understanding, like, okay, I get that you're hurting. I get that you're struggling. How can I help? Let's find you some help. Let's find someone that can help you with this. Let's find tools that you can put in your toolbox and you know so that when you are feeling like that you can whip that out and that can help you I wish at that time that there was somebody who understood and was able to help me in that way but there wasn't and I mean I look back and I think well I lived in a time where that just wasn't talked about so much it was a little bit more taboo right and Mm, I think that also the expectations of Olympic athletes is that you know, they never crumble. They're always strong and they're, they are the best in the world and they're the strongest in the world. And, and therefore this is a sign of weakness that, you know, you would never expect from an, an Olympic athlete. And I think, you know, that's where the topic of mental health, I think, has only become more prevalent in recent years because people are beginning to talk about it more like, it's not weird or wrong or a sign of weakness. But I think, Back in the day, I think everybody experienced it, right? It's just that we never recognized it enough to talk about it in a, in a certain way. Yeah. So it's a mental competition just as much as it is a, a physical competition in many ways, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. So I wanted to ask you about strength and resilience that you just, you just mentioned. One thing that I think can be really learned from professional athletes is the resilience needed to pick yourself up if you lose, you you lose a race and then you've got to go into another race. You can't let it destroy your confidence. How did you handle this? What were the things that you learned? Yeah. So I think for me, one of the things was learning how to not beat yourself up. Easier said than done. Yeah. Easier (laughs) said than done. But, you know, learning not to beat yourself up and then kind of really putting that behind you as, uh, you know, something that you learn from and not something that you failed at. Because I think that once you buy into this idea that you failed at something or you're a failure, it really hits you at the core. Like, you know, all that belief suddenly goes out the window. And it's very hard to bounce back from that. Whereas if you look at it like, okay, that did not go the way that I wanted it to. And how can I learn from it and get better at it? You know, what can I take from that and learn from that and come back better and stronger and faster the next time? And this sense of not beating yourself up like, okay, I had a bad day. I had a bad swim. You know, I can't do anything about it anymore. Let's move on. You know, let's figure a way to get better and then let's move on. And I think it's it's that ability to let go, like not beat yourself up and then let it go. You know, uh, learn from it. Yeah. 
but not see it as a failure. Because I find that a lot of times when when that attacks you at the core as a you know, like your failure comes at you like a person. You know, it really affects your your being as opposed to an act, like something you weren't able to do. The way I always approach it is like, okay, well, that's not the result that I wanted and that's not the swim that I wanted. And I really, I'm really not happy with that. And that really upset me, but okay, what can I do to be better? And what is it about that, that, you know, I should have done better. And that next time I'll, I'm going to learn from that and I'm going to make sure I don't do it again. Mm. And then I think that helps me to reset my mind for the next race and be like, okay, so now this is what I need to focus on. And this is, I, this is what I know I need to do as opposed to constantly looking back and why didn't I do it? Or why didn't I do this? Or, you know, why I'm such a failure, right? So now I'm looking forward and I'm looking at, okay, what can I do? in this next race to execute it the way I want it to. Clearly was working. (laughs) I took a lot of practice. (laughs) So one other slightly emotionally loaded topic that I wanted to ask you about, and, and let me know if you're not comfortable speaking about this. At the 2000 Olympics, you learned something pretty awful, and that was that your brother had just been in a terrible car accident. And then we touched on earlier that you'd not had the greatest experience with dealing with the press. And the press certainly played a role in how you experienced learning about this. Would you mind telling us this story? Yeah, so I I was at the 2000 Olympics and swimming faster than I'd ever been. And this was uh, the same year that we had broken that world record. And I was swimming really fast. I was really fit. And I had really, really high hopes going into those Olympics that I could be top five. I could, I could possibly medal at the Olympics. Mm. And I think the day before I was supposed to have that main race, my mom suddenly called me and she's like, you know, we need to meet up. And, and I'm like, no, mom, like, you know, we're not, you're not allowed into the Olympic village. And like, she's like, no, 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 no. Like, I really, we really need to meet up. And I'm like, what's going on? She's like, oh, this other person's going to be there. And this other person, like this official said it's okay. And they're going to be there. And I'm like, what, why? Like, what's happening? Right. So she and my brother, my older brother, they, they came and they met me. And, um, that's where she broke the news to me and told me that my younger brother had been in a car accident. And uh, he was in a taxi and he was serving NS at that time in the army. And he was going from one army camp to another. And it was raining. He was in a taxi with some other army mates that were sitting at the back. And he was sitting in front. And uh, they were coming around a corner. And a lorry had a lost control and swerved into uh, oncoming traffic, basically, and hit. Um, the taxi that they were in head on and it completely flattened like half the taxi and the taxi driver died on the spot uh, and when I looked at the picture of that taxi like half of my brother's side he was sitting in front and half of his side was flat as well and I didn't even know how he survived um, but that really really shook me because I think 
growing up, I've always been close to my brothers and I've got an older brother and a younger brother. And so my younger brother, somebody that I always looked after, you know, he was always somebody that, you know, if I was going out somewhere, I'll bring him along and he'll tag along with me and my friends. And he was always somebody that I looked after and I felt the sense of like, why wasn't I there to protect him and to shield him from all this? And why wasn't I there to, to, to be there and, and, and help him? And, and it really shook me. And that's all I had in my head. And I, and, and the reason why my mom was telling me all this was because the press had found out about it because my younger brother was a national athlete as well. Uh, he was a national uh, triathlete, a very, very talented um, athlete. And so he was somebody that was quite well known, I guess, in the press as well. And so they got wind of it very quickly and they were going to ask me about it in the press conference that I was meant to have that afternoon, a day before my main race. And so my mom wanted me to hear it from her instead of hearing it from the press. And it really hurt me. I, I, I could not control my emotions or my thoughts. It was very hard. I was in a complete state of shock. You know, if the press wasn't going to ask me about it, then they would have just kept that information from me until my events were over. And she had tried talking to them and saying, look, can you guys just wait until this is over? Until the, you know, her events are over, then talk to her about it, but it's not the right time, but they wouldn't, they wouldn't let it go. And so there was no option but to tell me. And it really affected me. I bombed. I, I swam really badly. It was one of those things where I could not get out of my own head. I could not get out of those emotions and snap out of it and be able to focus and be ready to swim my event. I did not at that time have a therapist or somebody that I could talk to to help me recenter and refocus myself. And so the one Olympics that I really believed I had the chance of finaling and meddling I completely bombed and it's really too bad because I can't I can't get back that time I can't get back that opportunity it's gone and that was hard that was uh it was a huge learning experience for me in many many ways but it's definitely helped me and shaped me and taught me more about who I am and how I need to deal with things and how I need to seek help when I when I'm in that state you know, that I, I can't, I don't necessarily have the ability to get out of my head, you know, when something that drastic or that tragic happens. And my brother's very lucky to be alive. I, I, I that's all I had in my head. I, I, I had gone from, you know, wanting the medal of the Olympics to not wanting to swim at all. All I wanted to do was just go home and be with my brother and see that he was okay. So yeah, that was hard. It was a big lesson. Jocelyn, thank you so much for sharing. <laughs> That story, it just seems astonishingly cruel that the press weren't willing to wait. Yeah. I mean, and just on the topic of press, as I know this has been quite a, a sort of a, a thing for you throughout your swimming career. Do you think there should be more protection around press intrusion? It's something that's been debated quite a lot recently in, in my home country, the UK, where the press has a reputation of sort of preying on the vulnerable. I mean, you want some media interest and coverage for building your brand, but you don't want to feel scrutinized to the point where it's significantly damaging your your mental health. Yeah. And, 
you know, I think that a lot of times they have this expectation that you're a national athlete and this is what is expected of you. If I take the 93 SEA Games where I was only 14 um, and that's where I was literally running away from the press. One, because, yeah, I had other other events that I had to get ready for and swim, but also I am very much an introvert, you know, and so to have all this press and all this media chasing after me, like literally running after me with their cameras and their notebooks and everything <sighs> is very scary. And I was only 14. There were no boundaries. There were no physical boundaries. There was no control. Um, they were literally like, I was going from warm up pool to warm down pool and they were like running after me. And so that was a very, very scary thing for me to go through because I'm very much introverted. It's one thing to say, yeah, as a national athlete, that's expected of you. You're expected to give the interviews. You're expected to stop at the the media corner and talk to the press. But what about the athlete that is extremely shy? Things like that make them really nervous. Where's the consideration for that? I don't know. I think that these days they do have people that help to coach athletes on what to do. They do have people that help athletes deal with the media and everything. And I think those are good tools to have. And I think those are tools that I use today when I need to be out in public because I am still a public figure and I am still introverted. But I think I've also had the, the privilege of time and experience and maturity to now pull out those tools and use it when I have to. But when I was younger, I really didn't have those tools. And so my only way to cope was to literally run away. <laughs> okay. Let's press fast forward a little bit. We're going to go after your swim career. You then become a nominated member of parliament, which is amazing. Can you tell us a bit about this time in your life? Yeah, so um, I had retired from swimming and I think uh, I was approached to uh, represent sports in parliament. And in Singapore, they have different people from different sectors that the sector will nominate as a person that can then sit in parliament as a voice for them. And so they've got different, many different sectors. I, I believe, if I'm not wrong, there's like nine, ten different sectors that can nominate somebody to be there for them. And so I was asked at that time if I would represent sports and sit in parliament and do some of that. And I agreed at that time to do it. And it was a very interesting time because I think that I learned a lot more about politics and what happens behind the scenes. I learned about how they operate and how they pass certain laws or, you know, certain bylaws or whatever it might be. And I also learned what is the best way to influence a certain direction that they're moving in? And so it was very interesting time for me. I, I was fairly young, I think, in terms of working experience. And so what I brought to it was really more from an athlete um, perspective and, and what athletes need and what young people need because I worked with young people a lot at that time. And so... I did my best. Uh, a lot of work I did was behind the scenes because I realized that at that time, I, I wouldn't say that's necessarily the case now, but at that time, that was the best and most effective way of getting change. It was not necessarily what you said 
uh, in the parliamentary chamber, but a lot of what happens behind the scenes. And so a lot of my work was done in that way. I think that nowadays it's a little bit different. Um, I think that what's said is, is listened to a little bit more. But back then, yeah, it was a little bit different. And it was a good learning experience for me either way. Uh, learned how politics and how government works. And I think later on when I became the uh, vice president in the Singapore Swimming Association, where I was like uh, in charge of the sport of swimming and open water swimming, it helped me understand what are some of the policies that are worth fighting and what aren't worth fighting, you know. Um, And it helped me to focus on what are the changes that I can make that are within my power and what things are really, really not worth fighting. You would be giving speeches in front of Lee Kuan Yew, right? When he was still alive. Yeah, that was very scary. He used to just walk into the chamber and uh, put his newspaper down and uh, (laughs) he'd just be sitting there. And Oh man, uh, there was a huge debate you know, when I first came in into parliament and uh, Lee Kuan Yew, who rarely ever gets up to speak, like he just put his hand up and decided he's going to speak on the spot. And so he just, yeah, he got up from his chair, slapped his newspaper down and just gave this speech that was just mind blowing. It was just off the top of his head. And he was so clear he had such clarity in his mind about what the situation was and what Mm. to do that it was crazy uh it was very inspiring actually we should possibly clarify for any non-singaporeans listening how big of a deal (laughs) lee kuan yu is the the founding prime minister of, of singapore just a total legend right yeah yeah and and again it was one of those things where it was pretty cool like in the back room being able to sit at the same table with him and have a chat was also very very inspiring did he feel nervous yeah definitely <laughs> <laughs> i mean it's lee Kuan you <laughs> yeah Definitely. Um, but yet at the same time, it was such a privilege to, you know, be able to sit at the same table as him and have that, have those conversations. Amazing. What an experience. Yeah. Okay. Jocelyn, we've, we've been talking for quite a while now and we've been talking a lot about, about your ups and downs. And I'd just like to say that you and I met a couple of times in person. One thing that just really struck me about you is you have this sort of calm, strength about you the way you carry yourself and I'm I'm a big admirer of you so is my perception right do you feel quite strong now well I think you know like I said I think I have more tools to know how to deal with public settings and I think that definitely over time I think things have built within that I am able to deal with public pressures but uh, I wouldn't say I was always that way <laughs> yeah I think I've grown into it and um I've learned to embrace um, certain situations that I have to be put in or I choose to be in uh, and then just pull out those tools from my toolbox and uh, deal with it. (laughs) Okay, Jocelyn, it's been just so, so wonderful to speak to you today. So just to wrap up, I'm asking all of my guests to suggest someone else who can come on this podcast. So might be someone who you feel doesn't have any self-limiting beliefs. So I'll get in touch and find out if that's true or just someone you think could offer a really interesting perspective. Yeah. You know, somebody I thought about that could be interesting to talk to is a man called Lee Kok Choi. And he was president of the Swimming Association while I was there. 
I learned a lot from him. He is in uh, the semiconductor industry at work and he's somebody who yeah, had his own company and then got bought over by, I think it was Texas Instruments and it was really, really huge. But he's such a humble man and he's so willing, you know, to share what he's learned along the way. And I think he's somebody who's, you know, went to a local university, went to a local school and has made it really big and and yeah, it's so humble about everything that he does. And yeah, he's really smart. And so I learned a lot of things from him about what to do in certain settings. And I think he would be somebody that's very interesting to talk to about how did he go from local to global and all that entailed in that transition. Oh, he sounds fantastic. Thanks so much for the suggestion. We'll, uh, we'll reach out. Okay. <laughs> Right, Jocelyn, I can't thank you enough for your time. It's been just so wonderful to speak to you. Thank you, Pippa. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Tiger Therapy. You made it to the end, which makes me so happy. I really hope you got something from this conversation. It would mean so much to me if you could subscribe to Tiger Therapy on whichever podcast platform you're listening on. The more subscribers we get, the more people will find us, and then the bigger and better guests we'll be able to have on. A big thank you to everyone who made this episode possible, including our brilliant guest and, of course, the team at Tiger Hall.